Welcome to Voice of Jones County podcast. In this and following programs, we'll bring you information about people, places, and things in Jones County, Iowa. Our content will vary, but it'll always be entertaining and informative. Tell your friends about this endeavor. All of our programs will be available on our website. You can follow us on Facebook by liking our Facebook page, Voice of Jones County, or go to our website, voiceofjonescounty.com. All audio and video programs will be posted to that site. And now, here's tonight's moderator for this program, brought to you without commercial interruption. Okay, this is Richard Toppy again with Voice of Jones County, doing another interview. And I'm interviewing the warden of the Anamosa Penitentiary, and I'll let him interview himself because I still have a problem and I apologize with the pronunciation of the last name. Well, you're not the only one that has struggles with that name. Bill Spearslagi is my name and yes, I'm the warden at the Animal State Penitentiary. Bill, uh, we, I think we talked about maybe close to about a month ago or three I weeks ago. I think so, yeah. yeah. And we talked about a number of things, a lot of it really interesting on your views on a number of subjects. One of them was, how did you get into this line of work? So, uh, not unlike a lot of people, uh, I don't know, when I was younger, actually I was 20 years old and I was looking for a job and the penitentiary was hiring at the time and so I came in, applied and uh, started as a correctional officer here and it just, it really took off and uh, through the years I was promoted through the ranks of security, uh, sergeant, lieutenant, a captain, and major at Anamosa. And in the year 2000, I was asked by the Department of Corrections to go to Fort Madison and take the deputy warden's role down there. And I did that for 12 years. I came back to Anamosa in 2012 uh, as the deputy warden's position was open here. And, uh, and when John Ferrum retired as warden, I was appointed as warden in 2015. So it's been quite an interesting journey for me. During this time, how has the prison demographics changed? Has it changed drastically or has it stayed about the same? Oh, it's changed drastically, particularly here in Anamosa in, in the world where I began. Uh, when I started, the average age of the offender was 22 years old and today the average age is 37 so they're getting older yes very significant difference why is that uh i think a couple things one our mission changed we went from a reformatory when i started to a penitentiary so in the reformatory days we housed a lot of uh, first-time young offenders uh, now we house a lot of long-term longer sentence guys that uh, we have more prisons in Iowa, they didn't function well there, or maybe their sentence is just too long to be at a medium security site, so they could come to Anamosa. And then uh, another thing is in the mid-90s, we went through a, a really uh, get tough on crime period in legislation and law enforcement and really meted out a lot of long sentences. And so, you know, we feel the impact of that yet today that we have a lot of people doing long long times in prison and so that I think stretches that age out a little bit that way too. And th- this isn't a maximum security prison by no means, is it? Uh, we are uh, all levels. We are actually classified as 
uh, we're maximum or in, in the state of Iowa we're level five Fort Madison is a level six facility then the next step down from us level four would be Fort Dodge Clarinda and Newton and then it, it steps down all the way to level one which is a, a prison camp where there's no fence or anything so so we are uh, technically we are housing max and medium offenders primarily well so in your opinion has crime increased or decreased oh boy that's tough I you know without looking at the data uh, but I think that we see more more challenging or hard crimes you know more crimes against a person versus when I started maybe more substance abuse related crimes uh, certainly a large number of our crimes today have substance abuse components but I think the level of violence increased through the years and gang activity has increased significantly through the years well and because um, I keep hearing and reading that crime has actually gone down nationally uh, but if, if places if states are building more prisons that seems to go against that yeah, our population in Iowa is is fairly stable and has been a number of years. Uh, we opened our last, oh, we added a unit to o the Oakdale facility in around 2004, I believe. Uh, but our last major prison construction, uh, as far as adding a facility, was 1997. So it's been a while since we've added. But I think to clarify, I see the types of people we have in prison are much more difficult the, not that the that cr not that crime is necessarily increasing but the people that we incarcerate are much more difficult and more high security risk part of that is because I think we're a lot smarter in corrections we know that keeping people in prison too long can actually make them worse instead of better we know that for the taxpayers, it's really expensive to keep a guy in a place like this mm -hmm. versus putting him out in the street on a parole or probation situation or in a work release facility where you can uh, generally safely manage low-risk offenders that way and not incur near the expense to the taxpayers that we, we have here. So I kind of liken what we have today in prison as a pot that's kind of cooked down and the stock has gotten a little thicker, I guess. So, wow. so the again, length of sentences are longer, ages are they're a little older, and uh, it's just a very different population than we once had. And I think in our last conversation, you mentioned that a high number of them actually are suffering from some level of mental illness. Yes. Uh, I would say, I don't, again, have the data right for me, but I would say about 40-some percent of our guys have some type of um, mental illness. Uh, there's about 28% that probably have an Axis I uh, type of mental illness that's pretty serious. Uh, not unlike in the community, a lot of them we manage pretty well with medications and therapy, but uh, they are also some that are, are just very difficult to manage, and that certainly drives our our numbers up in in prison as well. Do you think that those people should actually be housed in a different kind of facility? Oh, in in my perfect world, those people 
would receive mental health care before they come to prison rather than after they victimize somebody. The Department of Corrections is the largest mental health provider probably in the state. Wow. And uh, that's really unfortunate because, again, to get our services, somebody had to get hurt in the process before they came to us. So we, we have clinical staff, you know, we've become very well educated on mental health issues compared to when I started in the business. But, you know, hopefully, you know, as some legislation is passed, I don't know all the detail, but I'm hoping we get back to where we deal with these issues on the front end rather than on the back end. Yeah, and in order for someone to work in a prison, what kind of degree should they have? Uh, to be a correctional officer, you can start with a high school diploma, but in today's world, at least an associate's degree and more and more our applicants have bachelors and uh, most of them are either in a, a criminal justice related field or sociology, those types of well, disciplines. So you have a better trained and better educated workforce. Oh yes, yeah, very, very definite that we do. And how, would, how do they interact with, with the prison population? Uh, Do you notice the difference between the time you first started in this kind of work as to now, the way they interact? Oh yeah, very definitely. For a lot of reasons, I, I think, you know, through the years the level of professionalism has grown significantly. You know, our pay is better than when I started, our education is better. Those are all things that contribute to a more professional workforce. Uh, Society has changed, our views have changed on how we interact with these guys. And on most days, if you walk through here, you would be amazed at how not adversarial it is when you walk around the facility. And our staff are noted around the state and quite frankly around the country uh, as being really, really good at interacting with, with our folks and treating them in a humane way. and teaching them how to properly socialize and work and setting them up for success on the outside. That's funny because when you watch television uh, and you see some program that deals with the prison, the, the interaction is always tense and usually involves a conflict and it looks like you just walk through and you can cut the tension with a knife. Well, I don't feel that when I walk yeah. through here. So. I've certainly been in facilities where it's more like that. Uh, I can also say if you're watching some of those shows like Lock Up, why uh, I've been involved in, in a couple of those when I was at Fort Madison and those film crews have an uncanny way of going through your facility and finding the most bizarre situation <laughs> and highlighting that and trying to paint you in this in the light of oh, kind of like Hollywood paints prisons, I guess. The real world is not typically like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you took part in a panel discussion. We're going to switch over to a, a different kind of topic. You took part in a panel discussion here two, two or three weeks ago that dealt with issues of diversity, and you brought up some interesting issues uh, pertaining within the prison system, both from the inmate standpoint and from the employee standpoint about issues of diversity. Could you highlight some of those? Yeah, uh, I guess the first thing is that, you know, 
being from, I grew up in, in this area, I grew up over in the Monticello area, and my wife is from Anamosa, so, you know, we're very much small town people, and, you know, diversity was not a big part of our life, obviously, growing up in the 60s and 70s, and coming into work in a prison like this, uh, when I was a youngster, starting out, that was kind of a culture shock, because I was not ever exposed to uh, much diversity, so... So I very much appreciate my career that I've got to experience, you know, different races, different religions, different viewpoints on a lot of things, uh, and and I think that that's been very beneficial to me in in my career and as a person. And I think for our staff, you know, we need a diverse staff because we want staff that can relate to the population we have here. That sometimes. If you're Hispanic or African American, that if you're having struggles, that maybe you can you're more comfortable. You can relate with somebody of a similar background that that understands that. So so those are things that help us. I think on the staffing side of it, and again, just being understanding and working with. A variety of people and appreciating them for who they are and knowing okay not everybody's the same as me uh, but that's okay and it's not an excuse for bad behavior diversity is not a get out of jail free card by any stretch but uh, in this in this environment it's just very much a part of of our world and it's a part of the world we live in t today yeah um and you said that you would welcome a more diverse workforce, that there, but it's difficult to find people that are from outside of the community. Yeah, it's, it's still a, a challenge, you know, where there's definitely more diversity in these small towns in eastern Iowa than when I was young. Uh, but it's still, we try and recruit a workforce that looks more like our population. and. That's just difficult to do yet. We're we're still kind of out here in the rural area, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we have tremendous work ethic and tremendous good employees, but from the diversity perspective, it's just a little bit harder to hire. So, but we've come a long ways. We certainly have from when I started. Yeah, and um, I know that the when we did the evaluations for that uh, diversity training, everyone seemed to have nothing but positive remarks, they especially like the, the panel, their honesty. And uh, I know that there was uh, Randy, who was also a friend of yours, and uh, Sabrina Rogers, who is a counselor here in, in Anamosa. And I thought it was a great blend, and each one giving their take on some of the issues and challenges that, that Jones County, Anamosa has, and how we can move forward. Um, what do you see that we could do to improve things for sort of the broad field of diversity that we spoke about, be it the elderly, people of color, refugees, immigrants, uh, women. How, how do you see us moving forward? Oh, I think, I think a lot of it is just education, exposure, understanding, and probably part of that education is that I think yet in some circles that diversity has kind of a 
a bad name or something that uh, people look at it in a negative light. And again, I stress diversity is it's not an excuse for bad behavior. It doesn't it uh, doesn't belong to any one political I- ideal. You know that sometimes I think it gets all wrapped up in politics and people shroud themselves maybe one way or another with the the cloak of diversity but but diversity is it's not a bad thing it's a positive thing and I think well, I, need I know to that understand that I, I for some reason in some places that when you bring up diversity it says well there's all these liberals are going to come in and tell us what to do and there's fear in that and to challenge someone else's quote-unquote conservative views but uh, I grew up in Texas. My father was extremely conservative. <laughs> he was a person of color. So I think a lot of people have very conservative views, regardless of where they come from. So, yeah, and I, well, quite frankly, I, you know, I don't think people would look at me in, as a extreme liberal. I'm fairly conservative in my viewpoints, but I have a, a tremendous appreciation for diversity. And, you know, I, I pride myself that in my role that I'm on a first name basis with the imam from Cedar Rapids that uh, comes to the institution and meets with our Muslim population and our Native American consultant and I are very good friends and and we interact on a regular basis and and just the diversity of our people here I, I just I'm really happy to to have that exposure and, and I just can't think of what my life would have been like if I'd have missed that. What, what's the general consensus about uh, places like prisons that allow prisoners to participate in their own religion or political views or some? What, what's the general consensus around the state on on prisons that do that? Do they see that as a positive thing? Uh, religions in particular in prison are just like religions on the outside. Uh, most any of them I have seen that when people stay true to form and follow the beliefs the way they should uh, it's very good I see it having a real positive impact on our folks but sometimes religious groups in prison just as religious groups on the outside get some bad apples in there and things get corrupted and and you gotta have a little house cleaning once in a while maybe uh, to get back on track, but I again I deal with everything from uh, traditional Catholics and Protestant religions uh, to uh, Satan worshippers <laughs> to uh, you know oh we have Buddhist we have various Muslim sects and and I see I see very positive changes in people in all of these groups as long as they're monitored and they they do things the way they should. Yeah. Do do you guys have classes that uh, the prisoners can take to that maybe that once they're they leave that they can complete their degrees or s- some first steps towards uh, increasing their educational level? Yeah, we have uh, six instructors that uh, work here full time that are actually Kirkwood employees that we contract with. Mm-hmm. And so they do everything from basic literacy work with guys that are reading at first and second grade level to, uh, we have one gentleman here that is uh, working on his master's degree right now. So, really? Uh, yeah. 
Wonderful. And, yeah. So so they they cover the gamut. Uh, we have uh, oh I think this year so far we've had fifteen uh, get their high school equivalency degree. So uh, it's uh, definitely one of the the I guess the building blocks for success when they go back to the community. Then we also have uh, our work programs. We have. Uh, I think we have 30-some apprenticeship programs running right now. Really? And so we're teaching folks everything from welding to uh, culinary arts, uh, electrician, uh, just a wide variety of things. And these are all sanctioned by the United States Department of Labor. They are bona fide apprenticeship programs. And we have guys that complete them here. And when they go out, they go to... Go to work and are entering at journeyman level. Really, yeah. journeyman level. Yep. So. How hard is it for them to find a job once they leave? Uh, it can be a real challenge because obviously you've got the stigma of having served time. Yeah. But you know we keep working to break those those barriers down, and and a key part of it is to teach marketable skills. So, welding is a big one right now. You know, just in this in the Jones County. In neighboring counties, you know, I can think of a number of employers that are advertising every week for welders. You know, we're turning out guys that are very accomplished welders, and uh, those are those guys are employable. That's great. And yeah, we want we want people to give them a good hard look when they get out. Uh, we provide them with an education. We try and teach them different way of thinking so that they don't go back to their criminal ways. Try and address. You know, if they had issues with substance abuse, and obviously teach them work skills and good work habits. Well, I, I want to switch gears there a little bit. I want to, I'd like to talk about the the work you're doing with the arts groups, and and why you got involved with that, and what kind of work is the group doing? So uh, I got involved uh, a little over a year ago, uh, and it was became involved on the board of directors with the Grantwood Art Gallery here mm-hmm. in town. And it's kind of a new world for me. I'm not, I'm not an artist nor an art aficionado, but uh, I got involved because I just felt I, I've been, not been just necessarily real heavily involved in community things through the years. And now I'm in my late 50s and I'm thinking, you know, I really need to, to step it up a little in the community. So I, I got involved with the, the Grantwood Art Gallery and... Uh, we are currently engaged in a project where we've closed the gallery and are going through a major revamping of it and updating. And actually, gonna, we're going to have a grand opening on April 28th. So uh, I have become uh, a huge fan of Grant Wood. I, I kind of knew Grant Wood from being in the area, but as I've studied his work and you start to look at each of his paintings and each one has a story behind it and little little quirks and idiosyncrasies that he worked into them. Yeah. And then the the fact that, for me, it's fascinating to drive around, you know, I, the east of town, the farm that Grant Wood was born on, just out off, just off six, Highway 64, the school that he attended, out there that's it, featured in one of his paintings to drive by and it looks much now as it does 
in his painting. And then Stone City is just a, a fascinating story all its own with, with his art colony that he had out there and the inspiration for more paintings than maybe people realize because uh, different paintings like the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere yeah. in the background is Stone City. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. People don't realize that because it's kind of in the background, but it's... I'll tip you off on one of those quirky little things that, that you, you find out about his, you know, I, his I, works. I, I've mentioned before that I moved here to Iowa in 75, and finding all these little secrets and niches of creativity in small towns just kind of blows me away. And when I moved to Stone City in 80, I, I just I couldn't believe that there was that much history and, and coolness, you know? It has this yeah. cool factor. Yeah. So. And, uh, you know, to see the image of Stone City now says, I know that place. I know that place well. I used to live there. You know, yep. it's, it's, <laughs> so. it's cool. And I, I do silly things like, I, you know, uh, I drive out on the Ridge Road, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, which curve is he featuring here oh, yeah, in, in his Death on the Ridge Road painting and things like that. But it's so much of it is from this area, and it's just it's really neat story. And, of course, uh a lot of people, I'm surprised how many people don't realize that his final resting place is here in Riverside Cemetery. So, uh, uh, you know, th there's just, you know, this is truly his home. And yeah. uh, we're working as a community right now to try and get the uh, American Gothics, this, the large sculpture into town. And, you know, that's a big pitch of mine is it belongs here. This is, this is truly Grant Wood country. So. Yeah. Well, I, I limit these to 30 minutes because that's what Scott Whirling told me I could do because that's all it'll fit on our, on our data. And I want to thank you, sir, for taking time to, to talk with me about your life, your work, and uh, your, your endeavors outside of, outside of your work. So, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I can't believe it's been 30 minutes already. I know. It's like, wow. You've been listening to Voice of Jones County podcast. You can follow us on Facebook by liking our Voice of Jones County page or visit our website at voiceofjonescounty.com. If you'd like to contact us, message us on our Facebook page or use the contact us page on our website. Be sure to leave any thoughts on a broadcast, show ideas, or other information. If you'd like to submit a program or photos, let us know on our pages. Thanks for listening to Voice of Jones County Podcast.